Welcome to Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwen. Celebrate food and life by learning about the culinary scene around the world. Speaking with chefs, artists and food makers, farmers, authors and tastemakers who are passionate about everything delicious. A very good weekend to you food lovers. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. I love food. I love eating it and looking at it, reading and writing about it, creating it, sharing it, and especially talking about it right here on the radio. If you love to cook or love to eat, then stay tuned because we have a full plate today teaching you all the right moves from my kitchen to yours every weekend. I hope you'll join the conversation because here you can talk with your mouth full. Yes, we go way beyond mere eating and drinking. We're on a mission to find the most exciting places, new experiences, and emerging trends. So allow me to feed your soul as there is delicious conversation all throughout this hour. Coming up, Ed Levine is stopping by, the creator and founder of Serious Eats, the much-loved website and resource, and he's sharing his story. Also, we're making rice noodles yum. Abby Rains is here to share the best of home-cooked Southeast Asian cuisine that is so very doable at home. You'll always find me serving up seconds, by the way, at chefjamie.com, where there is lots of scrumptious inspiration. You'll find recipes, videos, and more. And my daily dish is on social. On Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, please become a fan and a friend at Chef Jamie Gwen. I like to kick off this show with a tutorial of sorts to make you the best cook you know. And I made a salt block grilled chicken this past week for dinner. If I may say myself, it was luscious. I spatchcocked or cut the backbone out of the bird so that it would lay flat. And I let it chill in a lemon, rosemary, olive oil marinade until it was happy. Then I grilled it skin side down with a salt block on top of it to press the chicken into the grates of my Twin Eagles grill. I turned it over, continued cooking. I have to tell you, it was so delicious, crispy skin, fabulous flavor, juicy meat and all. And it's one of my most favorite ways to cook a chicken. And seeing that it's summer and we're grilling up a storm, right? You are, aren't you? The greatest grill masters always seem to have a few tricks up their sleeve. And so I would like to humbly include myself in a lesser lineup of those that love to grill. I am a girl at the grill. I love to barbecue. And I thought that we should kick off summer uh, by arming you with a secret weapon when grilling and chilling. Mine is a salt block. So I love my salt blocks for everything for, uh, everything from rather serving sashimi to using it as a brick on my barbecue. And if you have one, kudos to you. And if you're in pursuit of one, amazon.com and other uh, cookware specialists online sell them at very reasonable prices today. If you've ever wanted to learn more about a salt block, here is your tutorial. So Himalayan salt is a rock salt that is mined from 500 million year old salt deposits. The salt is very pure and unadulterated and it's mined in large boulders and then it's cut or ground to the necessary dimensions. They make massive salt block platters to uh, powder fine finishing salt. 
And salt block cooking is uh, certainly all the rage and rather popular today. Salt blocks and plates and platters and bricks can be used for sauteing and grilling and chilling and curing and plating. One of my most favorite things to do is to serve it uh, and use it as a presentation piece. So the salt's crystal lattice has a very high specific energy and it holds any temperature you bring it to for a very good while. Also, because it's uh, lacking in moisture, you can cook or safely heat or even chill a salt block to the extremes. So they've actually been tested from zero degrees Fahrenheit up to 900 degrees Fahrenheit, which I find absolutely fascinating. Now, here's a couple of important facts about a salt block that you'll want to know. So using a salt block to season food adds really very minimal saltiness compared to say ground salt, you know, the grind that you use. And it imparts a a flavor per se uh, that adds saltiness. But I think that there's more of a complexity to the salinity that a salt block adds. So here are a few of my favorite ways for you to test that salt block of yours and see how you like for that flavor to permeate. You can arrange thinly sliced carpaccio or sashimi on a chilled salt platter and serve it. And you can watch as the food literally salt cures at the table. It gently cooks the edges. And when I say cooks, I mean it in quotes. And it brings on like a smidge of that mineral rich saltiness. The longer you leave it, the saltier it gets. Now you can also place your salt block under the broiler. You wait 30 minutes, you remove the tile with a kitchen glove, you set it on a trivet at the table, and you can saute thin pieces of meat and veggies while your guests or family look on with awe and disbelief and dawning admiration. And while you're cooking, the food is seasoned and takes on the saltiness of the block. I use my salt block as a brick for spatchcock chicken, as I mentioned. It adds flavor. I love that the weight gives you that crispy, delicious skin. And I've also seen a chef friend use their salt block on a stuffed trout on the grill, um, which was really fabulous. On the wilder side, you can heat the salt plotter or block on an outdoor gas grill, and then you put some butter down. Uh, If you're going to bring it to the table, you could do this right on the barbecue as well. And it melts. Then you throw on sliced bananas Then you turn off the grill if you have fire anywhere nearby and you douse it with a splash of bourbon and you flambe. And then you have this sort of sweet, salty, seductively caramelized bananas foster. Doesn't that sound delicious? You can freeze a Himalayan salt block for a couple of hours and then plate up scoops of ice cream or sorbet at the table. That will make you a culinary hero. Uh, But getting back to the basics, you can use it as a serving platter just at room temperature for butter at the table, cheeses, uh, charcuterie, pickled ginger and wasabi alongside sushi. And lastly, if you've ever sliced tomatoes and placed them on a salt block along with some buffalo mozzarella or burrata and fresh basil leaves, you have the ultimate caprese salad, right? It's really a brilliant presentation, and this could be 
your summer pull out all the stops signature dish. So with all that said, I suggest that you invest in a salt block to add fabulous flavor and creativity to your dishes. And I would love to kick off your salt block success with my salt block grilled chicken recipe. It's the bonus recipe for this week. So please email me, Jamie, J-A-M-I-E at chefjamie.com, J-A-M-I-E at chefjamie.com. And I will gladly send you the recipe, uh, never been posted before, for my salt block grilled chicken. By the way, you will have your salt blocks, the minimal investment that they are, for almost forever. Because when you clean a salt block, you just use a scrubber sponge and hot water, and then you pat it dry with a paper towel and you're good to go. It does not go in the dishwasher, by the way, and it will slowly degrade over time, but it will last a lifetime. So if you don't own one already, it is time to buy a salt block or a salt brick or a salt platter for that matter. I'd love to know how you use yours. Again, Let's dish. Email me, jamie at chefjamie.com with your best inspiration. And now it's time for food news. It's actually restaurant news this week. Jose Andres lovers delight in this news. Yes, I am a big Chef Jose Andres fan. The news is that he has opened a summer-only pop-up restaurant out on the patio with glorious views. And it is all about Chesapeake seafood. Oh, yes. Octopus is served with romesco sauce and a macadamia nut brittle. Sea urchin and lobster beckon at the seafood bar. There's crab, of course, a Maryland-style crab cake the Jose Andres way. And this summer, the patio at Fish offers communal tables at the MGM National Harbor Hotel in Maryland outside of D.C. That is my summer goal Mark my word. Please don't touch your dial. There is so much delicious conversation coming up. Ed Levine is here, the founder of Serious Eats, and he is about to inspire you with a story of true dedication and passion. I'm Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. Grab a snack and come on back. There is lots more fabulous food right after this. Welcome back, Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. This is where culinary information and inspiration abounds, and this is big. I am delighted to have a New York City food legend in your radio. Ed Levine loved food before it was trendy. He would scour the streets of New York looking for the best bagel or burger or babka. And in 2006, he made his passion a reality. He started Serious Eats, still today one of the most popular food websites with over 11 million monthly views and a cult-like following. I am one of those followers and a great fan. He is the James Beard Award-winning founder of Serious Eats, and he is finally telling the mouth-watering and heart-stopping story of building one of the most acclaimed and beloved food sites in the world. 
I am honored that Ed Levine is here to dish on his new book release, getting great acclaim. It is called Serious Eater, and it is a food lover's perilous quest for pizza and redemption. And I welcome you, Ed. So glad to have you here. So nice to be with you. (laughs) Thank you. Okay. So take us back. You were a freelance food writer. Everybody came to you because you were looking for the ultimate hot dog, right? And on a whim, you said, I'm going to share the wealth. Yeah. Well, you know, that was my jam. And (laughs) uh, so, you know, the problem with, as you probably know, with being a freelance food writer is that you, I was always, I was spending more, as much time pitching story ideas, even to editors that I had a good relationship with, as I did writing the stories. And so what Serious Eats did for me is that I removed the gatekeepers from my life. And it was, as I write in the book, an emancipation proclamation for a creative person because I no longer had someone to tell me, oh, you can't write about uh, the farm bill because that's not your beat here at the Times or Gourmet Magazine or whoever I was writing for. And so it was just so liberating. And, um, And, of course... You know, I allowed <laughs> the feeling of of liberation and freedom to overwhelm um, rational thinking when it came to making this a business. But, you know, in my defense, if you remember all the way back to 2006, block for the future, right? And everyone in, in the book, I mentioned all these, you know, Richard Parsons, who used to be the chairman of Time Warner, you know, Say blogs are the future of of digital publishing, and there are all these people and all these venture capitalists investing money in blogs. And so, even though it seems far fetched today, back then, you know, like I just got caught up in the fever. And the weird thing is, is that some of the VCs (laughs) also caught the same bug. And so they they became convinced, okay, yeah, we can build a business one blog post at a time, and we can scale it, you know. And so in the book I talk about, you know, I had this business plan that said that by year three I would have $40 million in ad sales, right? This was because ad sales were still thought to be the chief revenue stream for digital publishers. And so... How'd that know, work out for you, Ed? <laughs> you know, it's, it's been a struggle, I would say. Uh, you know, we... Uh, the revenue ebbed and flowed, and um, advertisers came and went, and it took a long time for to get paid by, even by Fortune 500 advertisers. And I just didn't know, Jamie. I was, you know, uh, I, I, I say in the book something about um, willful naivete and passion are first-time entrepreneurs' best friends. And it's true. And you know what I love about the book? There are so many business lessons to learn, but it's not a business book. It is 
an extraordinary story and it's your story. I call it, it's a passion project. It's, it's a passion book. And the way that you share the experiences like you just did to overcome the fear or the naivete, like you said, to build what you have grown and nurtured is such an extraordinary accomplishment, but there's tremendous lessons in it. And it's more than just the thousand slices of pizza that you ate uh, or the, you know, the enlightenment that you shared. It's what you built and grew all of this talent together. Yeah. And, you know, that was, that was the, uh, that turned out to be the secret sauce, right? Was just the stubborn refusal to lose and my ability to uh, talent scout and to give people a vehicle uh, for them to express their talent in, in, the, in the way that they chose. Like, you know, I, I somehow recognize that Kenji Lopez-All was a great talent because he was a great writer and he was a great cook and he was all, he's, and most of all, and Kenji talks about this in the forward, is that Kenji's a great storyteller. And for me, you know, Serious Eats was all about stories. And I tell people whether you're making a video or doing a photo collage or whatever you're doing for Serious Eats, always keep the story you're trying to tell in the forefront because that's, you know, I mean, we, we've all learned that in whatever medium we're telling stories. You've learned it in radio. Uh, but we're all storytellers, and so that's what I would, that's what I realized. And, and right, I, I didn't have a lot of money to throw these people. Uh, I mean, I say that I think, I think I started paying Kenji $25 a post, you know, not because. I was taking the rest of the money and taking a helicopter to the Hamptons every weekend, but because that's all the money I had. Right. That's called reinvesting on a good day. I believe you are a visionary and you have paved the way for so many of us in the industry to share what we love. You took a passion and made it a reality and Serious Eater is the most moving story of making a glorious dream come true. So kudos to you and thank you from all of us for all from all of us that love food. Uh, it is a, it is a beautiful read. The book is called Serious Eater, and it is uh, no doubt uh, the story of one food obsessive who followed a passion to what was a very thrilling and I'm sure sometimes terrifying when you read the stories uh, and very mouthwatering of places uh, all along the way to serious eats. It is a must read and the book has just released. It is written by Ed Levine, the founder of Serious Eats, and it is available now on Amazon and in fine bookstores everywhere. Ed, I hope you'll come back and share with us new projects and otherwise. Thank you. Congratulations on the book. And once again, kudos to you on um, all the really success. It. it was a pleasure. As the delicious conversation continues, Chef Jamie Gwen, don't go away.
It's delicious. It's divine. It's food and wine. Welcome back. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. We're taking a trip to Asia, and you don't even have to go through TSA. (laughs) Abigail Rains was born and raised in the Philippines, and her travels taught her that noodles and rice are the perfect canvas for the sweet, salty, and spicy flavors of Asian cuisine. She is the creator of the food blog Manila Spoon, and her first cookbook was just released. And let me tell you, it is delicious. It is entitled Rice Noodles Yum, and it teaches you to replicate the rich flavors of homestyle Asian cooking and street food fare, from grilled pork with rice noodles to a Filipino riff on paella. And Abby Rains is here to dish on everyone's favorite Southeast Asian dishes. And I will tell you just from reading through the book, I am hungry already. I'm very glad to have you, Abby. Welcome. Well, thank you so much, uh, Chef uh, Jamie, for having me over. It would be such a pleasure <laughs> and a delight for me to talk to you about the book. Well, thank, thank you. you it's, so much. it's my delight. I love that we can sit down at the table together and dish. And, you know, uh, we've gotten to know each other just uh, minimally, uh, although I would love to sit at your table. But, um, you know, I love Asian cuisine, anything Asian cuisine. And I think there's such a beauty in the fact that you have written a book where the ingredients are easily accessible and the recipes are very doable because this is the way you live, right? You eat rice three times a day, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. I want to be you, Abby. That's so true. <laughs> That's not a joke. It's true. <laughs> it is true. Uh, you feed your children rice as a staple at breakfast right. time, right? Take us through a day. Well, um, in the Philippines, uh, but I think I speak for the rest of Southeast Asia, definitely there will be rice. But usually it's not fresh rice, but leftover rice from the night before. So it would be fried rice in the morning. And then, and, uh, then it would be like with cured meat or like sausages, local sausages. So something like a savory meat that's uh, paired with rice. And then for lunch, it will be like the fresh boiled rice. And then again, it would be what we call a viand, or it would be something with meat or meat and veggies that are Filipino uh, meat and whatever is on the table for that day. And then for the evening, again, it will be rice, and again, same meat and vegetables. And then for the dessert, it will still be rice again because... You won't believe how many things you could do with rice. Oh, wonderful and, things. Like, I can't wait to make coconut rice cakes, but we'll get to that. Yeah, so again, it's uh, like uh, with coconut usually, coconut milk and rice with brown sugar or palm sugar, and then it will be flavored with either pandan, vanilla extract, and then again, it will, be, it will depend on the rice you want to use. You could use black rice, or you could use white rice, or brown rice, or uh, any variety of rice that you want to use for dessert as well. Yes, and there's this wonderful technique, which you led me right into, thank you, uh, that you teach in the book that I was taught by a great Chinese chef many years ago, and that is you can measure, and it's always the safe bet, right, depending upon the variety of rice you're using and the ratio of rice to water, but you use the finger technique. That's how you were raised, right? And most great rice cookers do not measure. So can you teach us the finger technique for cooking rice, please? Sure, yeah, because uh, like at least in the Philippines, or I'm sure the rest of Southeast Asia as well, we don't really measure rice because sometimes you don't know how much you're going to cook. So sometimes the rest of the family is there, so there's 11 people there, so you need to cook more, or there's less people, so you only need a little bit. So the beauty with the finger technique is that you can cook as much rice or as little as you want, but just note that rice expands three times its size. So 
if you're cooking that, just remember that because you don't want it to overflow um, from the saucepan. But you do first rinse the rice twice. This is to help get the starch out. So it's not uh, super sticky because you don't want that. And then after you've uh, rinsed it, then you drain it well. And then pop the rice on the saucepan. Just level it. And then insert your finger. You can use any finger there. And then measure the depth of the rice. And to know, uh, you know where the top of the rice reaches your finger using your thumb as a marker. And then after that, you take it out and you place the same finger on top of the rice. And then you fill it up with water up to where you marked it with your thumb. And that's it. You add enough water to reach the point that you marked with your thumb previously and then proceed to cook. And you would just let it uh, either cook in the rice cooker or you would in the stovetop. So you let it reach the boiling point and then cover it and then cook and simmer on low for 15 to 18 minutes and then leave it undisturbed for another 10 minutes after it's cooked you will have the perfect rice. Yes, individual and it grains. How much rice you cook, it, it will always come out perfectly, and this is perfect for fried rice because you want um, kind of uh, rice grains that won't won't be mushy or sticky. Right, in- individual grains. That's the the goal of every great rice cooker, and I mean the person, not the machine. I love that the finger technique is foolproof, Abby. I think that's absolutely brilliant. I mean, talk about being passed down by generations, right? right. This is yeah, what it's always worked. It has always worked. What you were taught and what your mother was taught and what your grandmother was taught. Uh, Let's start simple as far as recipes. You make garlic fried rice with the crispy, sweet, caramelized bits of garlic. And I learned to make fried rice because this is your very basic fried rice by using, and you alluded to this, leftover rice from the night before. For me, Abby, it's the container that comes from the Chinese food restaurant that you don't eat. And so I've always stashed it in the fridge with the uh, with the plan and the thrill and the anticipation of making fried rice the next day or the day after. The best fried rice is made with day-old cooked cold rice, correct? Yeah, that would be the perfect fried rice because you can't use the freshly cooked one. Otherwise, it's going to be sticky and mushy and it's not going to work. So it has to be the yeah the one that you made the night before or the one you took from the Chinese. And then just leave it in the fridge overnight. And so nothing is wasted. That's what I love about it because you use leftover rice. And then um, for the um, basic garlic fried rice, you want to um, cook the uh, garlic, the minced garlic, in very slow heat. You've got to be a little bit patient with this because you just want it to brown slowly and then so that the oil will soak up all that garlic flavor. Because if you start and crank up the heat immediately, it will just burn the garlic. And you don't want burnt garlic. It tastes bitter. So that's what I would do. So just slowly cook it there. And after that, you will, um, once you've flavored all that oil, you can take out a little like a tablespoon just for topping for what for the rice that you cook. And then after that, then you put the rice in and then um, crack up the heat a little bit because you're frying the rice now. And then you just try to separate the grains. You can pat down the rice and then fold it over a few times just until all the grains have separated. And then the good thing about this is that it's just a basic rice. So you can put whatever leftovers, like if you have leftover meat, like a chicken, let's say even if it's a rotisserie chicken or let's say leftover fried pork chops or anything. And also the vegetables that you have, I usually would put some um, either carrots there or frozen peas or anything you have. So you can dress it up. 
And that's what I like about these uh, fried eggs because it's very versatile. But you can leave it plain as well if you want to. And you put a fried egg on top. And as far as I'm concerned, dinner's ready. I mean, that's, that, right, that's, that's right. just... Yeah, it's always, it's like that. It will be breakfast. It's yeah. always fried ice with fried eggs and fried plantains if you have some. Oh, my God. Okay, Abby, I'm coming to your house. Um, you also yes. cook <laughs> rice and coconut <laughs> milk. That is a very traditional Malaysian style, right? And when I think of coconut milk infused rice, I think of Hawaii. That's very tropical to me. And there's just something so rich and delicious about it. That's true. Oh, nothing better. Coconut rice cakes, though, that's a whole nother dish. Talk to us because I'm jumping to the sweet before we move on to noodles. This coconut rice cake is just what looks to me like the most luscious, brilliant, beautiful cake with a crumb almost. Right, that's true. And uh, at the outset, I would like to say you won't believe when, once you cook this that it's completely gluten-free. It will compare, the crumb of this one will compare to a regular um, cake made from wheat flour. It's just crazy good. And I think what gives it a lot of flavor, as you mentioned, is the coconut milk. It's the magic that makes this cake so delicious. And it's not uh, complicated to make. It's pretty easy. You pretty much mix everything. And then after that, you can either use banana leaves. We recommend that because it's very traditional in Asia. And banana leaves that are frozen are easily, um, you can find it. Accessible. Yes, they are today. Yeah, in any Asian store. But then it's not even required. You can just put parchment paper. I only say uh, banana leaves because uh, it gives a subtle aroma and a subtle sweetness to the dish. But that's not even necessary. So, and then you just bake it like a, like a regular cake, and what comes out is that sweet coconutty rice cake that's really perfect for a mid-morning snack. So my father and I used to go every day when I'm in the Philippines to the coffee shop or the mall, and we'll find it everywhere. Abby, you're making me so hungry. We'll take a quick break. When we come back, more on the best dishes of Southeast Asia with author... Abby Rains, you and me, Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. Be right back. just tuned in you're late we're talking rice noodles yum with author abby rains she is the founder of the food blog manila spoon and she is full of glorious insight on southeast asian dishes at home we have to move to noodles before we get to yum so (laughs) uh, pad cu tell us about it oh it is one of my favorite thai noodle dishes because I was debating there so much when I went to Thailand. I've been to Thailand many, many times. And I try a different noodle dish every time. It's like, what am I going to make? What am I, I going to make? It's just so hard to decide. But I have to start with Pad Siu because it's such a wonderful dish. And it's something very comforting. And it's not very complicated to make. Because it's essentially um, flat noodles, flat rice noodles that's stir-fried in soy sauce. So everyone knows soy sauce. And it's not that difficult to find. So, but uh, just a note on soy sauce because... Um, 
we know that there are different varieties of soy sauce, Asian ingredients. So this would be using um, a kind of a dark soy sauce. But uh, you can find all these kind of soy sauce in the Asian store, and it's not difficult at all. And so what is nice about this is it uses those flat rice noodles, and I think those flat rice noodles really soak up all this um, seasoning. Yes, they're very porous, right? And you can buy these flat rice noodles that cook up very quickly in any Asian market. And then, of course, because it's Thai dish, you also have to uh, put a little bit of uh, oyster sauce and also fish sauce because, as you see, when it comes to Southeast Asian, there's fish sauce. So it's a combination of all this, a bit of soy sauce, fish sauce, and oyster sauce, and you get a lot of this flavoring. And then, of course, you have the greens as well, because in Asian cooking, there's always the meat, whether it's a rice or it's noodles, and you also also have the greens. So you got like a complete meal out of it. But I heard that in Thailand, this is like a favorite for lunch. So, yeah, so, um, so again, you just pretty much just like a stir-fry. And then the only important thing to remember when you make this is, as with any stir-fries, you just got to ready or prep all the ingredients beforehand. Yes, so that everything yeah, is, is ready to go. Right. So the cooking itself is not very complicated at all, but because it happens quite fast, as with any stir-fry, just make sure that everything, because you wouldn't have time to, oh, where's the soy sauce? I, I, right, and open the pantry. I love that the fresh uh, rice noodles, the wide rice noodles, uh, take on the color of that right. dark soy and the oyster sauce. You know, I'm a great fan of fish sauce, Abby. I use it as a substitute oftentimes. In uh, in Italian cooking, they have something called colatura, which is the anchovy uh, anchovy sauce. It's, yeah, it's delicious and, and permeates the dish. You need a few drops. But when I'm without or if I don't have anchovy paste then I will go to my fish sauce because it has that tangy, briny, salty bite. And if you don't add too much, it just elevates the flavor of so many dishes. It's sort of like my secret sauce. Uh, It's what I add when I think this needs something, right? And so this combination of all these flavors... Uh, pads to you. You, Going back for just a moment, you keep multiple soy sauces varieties right. in your pantry, right? Right, yeah. Okay. Are there just the basic uh, tamari and then you use a dark soy? What else do you use? Not all soy sauces are made equal. They're just different varieties. But uh, since Southeast Asian cooking is uh, very much high, highly influenced by Chinese cooking, mm-hmm. so it would be more of the Chinese variety of soy sauce rather than the Japanese one. Ah, good to know. So, if you okay. go, so that's why it's so easy to find these kinds of uh, soy sauces because you just have to go to the Asian store, the Chinese store. Yes. So for it all depends on which country. For example, in Indonesia, they love a sweet soy sauce, and that is so perfect for fried rice and also for making mi goreng, which is the stir-fried um, noodles of Indonesia. Yes. And then you also have the dark soy sauce, which is not as salty as the regular soy sauce, but because it's called dark because and it's slightly thicker. Uh, in consistency, because it's not so much for seasoning, but to add color to the noodles. Yes, and and depth of flavor. Right, as well. And then, of course, there's the light or regular soy sauce. And this is, I want to, I always say in the book that, you know, light soy sauce doesn't mean reduced uh, sodium. It's just light as opposed or as compared to the dark soy sauce. Dark, right. Yeah, because this is lighter and thinner. But this is just your regular soy sauce. So more for dipping and for seasoning. Yes, so you're run-of-the-mill. I, I of do the point mill. that out in the book so you would know. And it's like I said, it's not 
hard to find. You will you just go to any Chinese or Asian store, you'll see all of them properly labeled. The book is brilliant. Congratulations to you. It is being so well received and so much loved and it very well deserved. Congratulations on your first book with many more to come, I know. Um, I've been a, a great fan of your blog for some time, and there's so much knowledge there to learn. Um, so we thank you for sharing from your heart and your kitchen. Simple, no-nonsense, delectable Southeast Asian dishes at home are so very doable with the help of Abby Rains. Her new cookbook entitled Rice Noodles Yum will have you replicating the flavors of homestyle Asian cooking in no time. So you should check it out and learn more at manilaspoon.com. That is uh, Abby Rains's food blog. You will also find the book available on Amazon and in fine bookstores everywhere. Abby, will you come back and cook with us again, please? I'd love to have you. Oh, definitely. Yeah, just tell me. <laughs> I will. I'll be there. I, I look forward <laughs> Thank to you it. So much. And so that brings us to the end of another hour of culinary discoveries and edible experiences. I loved it, and I hope you did too. I'll leave you with my last bite for this show, my last ounce or tidbit of gastronomic inspiration. If you're following my Instagram feed, at Chef Jamie Gwen, then you know that I am air fryer obsessed. Warm a wedge of St. Andre cheese in a minute. Make nachos in three minutes. Air fry chicken wings, bake biscuits, all without turning on your conventional oven. Do I need to go on? I love my air fryer. And so here is my newest one ingredient wonder. For all of you like me watching carbs, it is swimsuit season, you know, and I eat for a living. I call these crispy salami chips and I serve them with honey mustard for dipping. So in batches, you place salami, or you could use pepperoni, in a single layer in the bottom of your air fryer basket, and you air fry at 360 degrees for eight minutes, and then you let them cool on a plate, and you serve them, I will tell you, for a crunchy, crispy, satisfying, meaty snack that is so protein-focused, there is zero guilt. What else could you want? Oh, and by the way, they go nicely with a cocktail. <laughs> You're welcome. I will post my crispy salami chips on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Chef Jamie Gwen. And I will meet you here next weekend when there is lots more scrumptious and scintillating conversation in your radio. I thank you for listening. I'm Chef Jamie Gwen signing off, and I hope you continue to eat well. Hey.